You are listening to Hands at Work Audio. In this episode of the Hands at Work podcast for July 4th, 2014, Mark Demore is sharing with us from the hub in South Africa. He's speaking on his reflections of the story of Jonah. Um, so the book of Jonah for me, for me I still imagine it as I did as a child, right? Uh, somewhere in my imagination, I'm not sure if I made this up, uh, but I see those felt boards that they used to have in, in Sunday school with the whale and Jonah and Jonah with a little candle in the belly of the whale. And I think you guys are familiar with the technology of the felt board. Um, it's what we depended on before VeggieTales before veggie um, to, to tell our children these stories of, of what, 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 what the Bible is talking about here. But, of course, in, that, in the children's imagination of Jonah, the central character is the whale, right? The whale is the exciting bit, right? I think that's maybe one of the stories I remember from, a, from childhood is Jonah's story because it's exciting. Somebody gets eaten by a whale. That's incredible. Um, but this is, it's, it's a short book, right? It's only, it's four, four chapters and four short chapters, actually. But it's packed full. Each sentence moves the story forward in such an incredible way. It's fast-paced. And I encourage all of us to, to sit down over the weekend Take the 10, 15 minutes it would take, although I think if you got into it, you could spend a little bit more time, but I'd encourage us to, to take some time and, and to read the story. It's short. It's accessible. Um, when I, the, the next time I remember, after imagining the story as a child, the next time I really remember it being talked about, um, I'm sure there was many times in church where it was talked about, and I just wasn't perhaps listening as well as I should have been, but the last time, or the, the, the first time in kind of adulthood when I remember it being talked about was a, kind of a, uh, an evening service at, at, the, at the church that I was attending. And, it, um, and, and there, it, it, the book kind of got opened up to me in a new and, a, and in a fresh way. Um, seeing how the, the book itself touches upon so many sensitive things to us as the people of God, um, people who are trying to follow God as best we can. Um, it opens up and, and exposes um, who we are as, as perhaps broken vessels, um, but it talks about our nature, it talks about God's nature, it talks about how we follow God, um, how we do this in the world, uh, how we do this in our lives. Um, but it leaves a lot unanswered. Um, there's a lot of mystery in this book as well. It doesn't provide us all the answers right in front of us, which, which is good in a way. It helps us to engage in it. Um, even the, the end of it, the end of the book ends in a question, right? It ends in this uh, question that God poses to, um, to, to Jonah and, and a question that really he poses to us. But it starts with a rise and go, right? God says, or, well, it begins... Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come, uh, has come up before me. So this is familiar language, right? This arise and go. We see this throughout the scripture. It's familiar for us. We have it on even t-shirts, right? Arise and build, right? Um, so this is, this is what it means to, to be a follower of God. We arise and we go. We follow God's voice. And so Jonah, being a follower of God, taking God's voice seriously, arises and goes the other way. 
right? <laughs> Nineveh's over there. He goes, we're told, to try and get to Tarshish, right? We don't really know where Tarshish is, but it was over the sea, right? It was, it was in, the, in, the, in the Jewish mind, it was the place over the sea. And, and the Jewish people weren't a seafaring people, right? For them, going over the sea, that wasn't the comfortable thing, right? They were, they were land people. So to go, to, to go out into the sea was to go and flee as far as you could away. And he was fleeing the presence of God, it says. Um, so he gets on a boat. Um, he, he pays his fare, gets on the boat, heads out to the sea. Um, <clears throat> now, it doesn't take long in this story for the old saying that you can run, but you can't hide to, to come true, right? Very quickly in the story, all of a sudden, the boat is inundated in a storm, right? The, the merchants that he's with, the, the, the mariners, the, the, the shipmates, they are freaked out, right? They're starting to throw stuff overboard. Their boat is being inundated with water. It's sinking. They're calling out to their gods. And in the midst of this, Jonah's asleep. Everything's tossing about. I'm sure the boat is going up and down. I'm sure it's not a big boat. He's probably out exposed to the rain. But it says that he's, says that he's asleep. And so I in that, we see that Jonah, first upon hearing, uh, first upon hearing that he is to go to Nineveh, he decides to flee. Right? He's running. He's frantically running as far as he can away. And now, when God's presence is chasing him, when when the storm is is uh, is tossing the boat that he's on to and fro, he's asleep. He's not aware of what um, of what is going on around him. He's fleeing again, right? This is, he can't actually flee further physically, but emotionally, spiritually, he's fleeing, right? <clears throat> I think we all know what this feels like, right? When we hear that, that Jonah ran from the presence of God, we can experience that, right? That if, if we open ourselves up, if we're even a little bit honest with ourselves, we know what that feels like. When it feels like, um, like the world around us is being tossed to and fro, and we just do not have enough energy to go on, we know what that feels like too. Right? These are entry points into the story for us. Um, the story is an old one, but it's new for us each time we read it. Um, so the guys that are on the boat with Jonah... They're crying out to their gods. They're, they shake Jonah awake. They get him up and say, cry out to your God. Maybe your God will stop this. And it says that after, right after that, the sentence after that is they cast lots to see who among us is causing this problem, which I think is actually a really interesting thing. Um, but it certainly implies that Jonah had no part of it, right? Jonah didn't cry out to God to, to stop the storm or to repent or to anything, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't act anymore. He was up. He was awake this time, but he was still emotionally, spiritually, wasn't engaged, right? <clears throat> so they're casting the lots of these dies, um, and I don't know how exactly, maybe, maybe it's a four-sided die. There's four people. They give each person a number. They roll the die, 
It's four. Jonah was given the number four, and all of a sudden, Jonah, Jonah's the guy, right? Jonah's the reason why, why this storm is upon the boat. And so it's at this point um, that the mariners ask Jonah, what should we do? Clearly, it's your fault. The die does not lie. So where, where's the problem? What's the problem? And this is where Jonah opens up and says, I'm a Hebrew. I, I, well, let me read it to you. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Right, so he's giving them the, the full story now and saying, I'm fleeing the presence of God. Sorry to get you guys into this, but this is, this is the way that, that it's happening. And so he does what might be considered a brave thing and says, you know what? If you guys want to live, you guys just have to toss me off the boat. Just get me off the boat. The storm will, will cease and everything will be okay. Um, but in a way, this is again... Jonah fleeing, fleeing again, right? Um, but the guys do it. They well, actually, they don't do, do it right away, which is also very interesting. They, I, I would assume, I would, if I was in that situation, and a guy said in the midst of a storm, "Storm, throw me off," then the sea will quiet down. I would think that he was crazy, and I think these guys thought that he was crazy, right? It says that they try and row to the land, they ignore his, but. But eventually they come to a place where they just have to say, they come before actually Jonah's God and say, you know what? The blood isn't on our hands, right? This guy is saying this is what needs to be done. It's not on our hands. They toss him over, over, over the boat. Now when I imagine this happening, um, I imagine that as he hits the water, he sinks like a stone. And the waters quiet down. There's a quiet, peaceful presence. The moment he disappears under the water, there is peace, there is quietness, there is shalom, there's this completeness. God's presence is hovering there. The mariners stand in awe and wonderment about what has just happened. This whole episode, this storm, the whole thing. But there's also something there that they're aware of. They're aware of God's presence. And God's presence is here longing to have contact with his people, longing to have, to reach out to um, and connect with his creation, with his people, with his sons and his daughters. They, the mariners are, are experiencing are a witness of, of a God that they didn't know existed. Um, see, I don't see Jonah jumping or being tossed into the water and all of a sudden a great fish coming up and and once that happens then it's calm the mariners look at what just happened here this whole the storm tossing him out eaten by a fish and they say if we don't want that to happen to us let's make some sacrifices let's make some vows to this god because we don't want any of that no I, I think it's different right they've they've tried they've spoken to their gods nothing happened They've seen the action of a living God in their presence. And then they felt the quietness, the calmness, the presence of God surrounding them. And it's at that point that they make sacrifices to God. And then they vow. They make vows to Him. What does that mean? What does that mean for the rest of their life? Well, we don't know. 
But it's interesting. It's interesting that even in the disobedience of Jonah, um, the way that God is pursuing Jonah, he's healing and he's bringing his presence to those who Jonah comes into contact with. It's an interesting part of the story. So Jonah's in the water. Above him, the presence of God. But he's sinking. He's fleeing again. The water is pressing in upon him. He can't breathe. Feels like the life is coming out of him. And I think we've been here too. We've been in the place of frantically running from God. We've been in the place of being apathetic, to being asleep to what's going on around us when we feel like we just don't have any more energy to to spend on the things that are going on around us. We're emotionally drained and we just want to be still. And we've been in the place where where we feel like we have just been flung over the side of a boat and that we're sinking and sinking and sinking. We can experience that. We know what that feels like. Again, if we're a little bit truthful with ourselves, we've been in that place. I've been in that place. I've struggled with anxiety. I've struggled with depression. and Deep moods of, of feeling like there wasn't a lot of light. Like I didn't know how I would ever not feel crushed like I was. I felt overwhelmed with shame and guilt. I've been overwhelmed by anger and frustration with myself, with God, with others. But as Jonah sinks to the depths, God hasn't given up on him. It says in the scripture, he appointed a fish, a big fish, to swallow him up. Now I can think of a lot more pleasant ways for God to save Jonah than being eaten by a fish. I would think of angels beautiful heart playing, beautiful angels sucking me up into heaven, exposed to the glory of God, that would transform me, I think. You know, that would be incredible. My imagination could run wild with the things that God could do for me to prove himself of how much he loves me and how much he cares for me. So why a fish? Why this big fish instead of, God could do anything to save Jonah, but why the fish? So I don't know. Um, I think we could talk about it. I think it would be interesting to hear other people's thoughts. But I think that it's a pretty good example of how God rescues us. It's not pretty. It's often uncomfortable and messy. It doesn't make a lot of sense. How does this fish, how, how does he live in the fish for three days? Let's not worry about it. But it doesn't make a lot of sense a lot of times, right? Um, and it wouldn't work The only way it works is because God is in it with us. See, the whale is God's gift to Jonah. The whale is God's grace. It's how God shows his compassion towards Jonah. It's a safe place for Jonah. It's in the belly of the fish that Jonah can find the, the means with which to come back to God. How does that happen? Well, we're not given uh, an account of the three days and three nights that he's in the belly. But I think we can, we, I think we, we know also what it feels like 
to, in the midst of our tiredness and in the midst of our giving up and that feeling of being crushed, being put in a place that's messy and uncomfortable and that sense of being also swallowed by a whale. The one thing we are told of when he's in the when he's in the whale is he writes a poem. And I guess this as a child, this must have been where the candlelight came in, because how could you write a poem if you didn't have the candlelight to write it down, right? Okay. But listen to the poem. I'll read the whole thing. It's it's long, it's about the whole of chapter two, but but read it. Read it along with me if you have it, but um, but just, just listen to the words. So Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shawl I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. That admission that he can't run. God's presence is there. The temple is where God resided, right? In, in the Jewish imagination, God resided with them. Not in the way that we understand God residing in us through Christ. But it was the temple. Right? We look to the temple to find God. And so as he says that, he says, I tried to run away, but still, I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So upon completing such a beautiful poem to the Lord our God. Then God sent his angels, plucks him out of the fish, brings him into the glories of heaven, prepares a feast upon him, allows him to dwell there, brings him back to Nineveh. He presents an incredible truth to them, conversion, and it's great, right? Everybody hails Jonah. Not quite, right? That's the way that I would like to write the story because that would make it nice and complete, right? This story of running away from, from God, of going down and down and down and down, fleeing away from him into the pit and then being scooped up and saved, right? Salvation is here. And now it's going to be easy. Now it's easy. Now I've seen the glory of the Lord. Now it's easy. It doesn't work like that either, does it? The Bible says that the fish at this point vomited him out. It wasn't pretty. It was was messy. Probably had seaweed all over him. He talks about the seaweed around his head. He's got fish guts all over him. He's spewed out onto the the beach. 
And now he's, he's still nowhere closer to Nineveh. Right? He's still nowhere closer to, to doing what God had asked for him. And I think once again, we've been here. We know what this feels like. We've been vomited out. We feel like we've been vomited out. After this incredible experience of salvation, we look around us and we're still messy. We're still in the soup. But what's amazing is that in the midst, as, as Jonah's probably taken the seaweed off of him, God's voice comes to him again. And this time, um, when God says to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This time, Jonah responds a bit more positively. And he sets off towards Nineveh. Now again, if this is where our story ended, it would still be a good story. right? It would still be a story of salvation, of call and response, of God's call on Jonah, Jonah responding um, after a while, after the salvation experience, him following what God asked him to do. But what turns this from a good story into a great story, and from a story um, that feels distant even still to a story that's incredibly relevant to us, is the last is these last two chapters. Because in the next two chapters is where we learn why Jonah was running. We learn more about his character. We learn more about God's character. And in and through this, we're actually learning more about us. We're learning more about our relationship with God. We also learn that this moment of salvation, this great moment of being rescued by God and going out to do his purposes, doesn't always end up the way that we think it will. Or the way that we want it will, maybe. So when Jonah gets to Nineveh, so he gets there very quickly, we don't hear about his journey. Next thing we know, Jonah's in Nineveh. And he proclaims on the street, in 40 days, God's going God's to wipe this place out. So he says, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what's amazing is that the people of Nineveh, remember Nineveh is not in Israel, right? Nineveh is an Assyrian city, the north and these are not the people of God right <clears throat> these people um, it's a message that, that, that Jonah is bringing as a man of God to these to these pagans that that your city is going to be overthrown that's the way it's going to be but what's incredible is the people of Nineveh respond right they hear God in what Jonah is saying and they say okay, we're taking this seriously. All 120,000 of us, we are going to, we're going we're gonna to fast, get out the sackcloth, let's throw it on, let's repent. We have, we've been following evil ways and we need to repent. Even the king and the nobles, everybody it says, from the bottom of society to the very top, we're united, we're equal in the way that they brought their repentance before God. <clears throat> And so what's amazing still is that God hears them. Right? Remember, this isn't the people of God. This, 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 this isn't God's people, right? 
But God, in this, in this moment of hearing people who are repenting of their evil ways, responds with compassion. <clears throat> it's here that we start to get a bigger picture of what God is doing. We saw it briefly on the boat with these mariners who were not, did not have that relationship with God in the way that Jonah did, but in and through their experience, God reaching out to them. And here in this much bigger picture, this, this image of a God who is seeking, who is longing, who is reaching out to people, who the rest, who his people often look at and say, they're the enemy, they're other than us, they're outside the covenant of God. And it's, 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 a, it's an incredible picture, actually. It's a very, it's a huge foreshadowing of what Christ does, right? Of what Christ's salvation means for Israel, but also for the Gentiles. <clears throat> so, this amazing situation where God relents, changes, this hunger for reconciliation and for healing is witnessed onto, this, in, onto Nineveh. <clears throat> and in response to this, what happens is Jonah again takes up. Right? says he leaves the city. Well, he leaves the city before God relents it, I think. But, um, but he's angry, right? It says very viscerally. Let me read chapter 4. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life away from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And it's easy to just think that that Jonah's just having a temper tantrum, right? To think that he's like a five-year-old kid, didn't get his way, and so now he's patting his feet and, and, and acting all upset. But to understand the deep reasons why, right? <clears throat> In response to this, the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't even respond. The silent treatment, right? This is classic child behavior, right? As a kid, I used to do it all the time. Freeze out my parents and my sister. Of course, they knew me too well that I would laugh if they even just so much as smiled at me. They, take, they took advantage of my good nature in that way. Um, but of course, right? We, we know that, that sense of giving the silent treatment. So Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should, should, till he should see what would become of the city. So even still, God's relented, right? The action has happened. And yet, Jonah goes out and says, I'm going to see what happens in the city. Yeah. I'm going to call down that fire of heaven to see what happens then. In the midst of this, he builds himself a little shelter, and God provides this plant to give him shade. Right? This is the first time in the story where we see 
an action of God that makes Jonah's life a little bit easier, provides for him a little comfort. The whale was a great gift. It was grace, it was mercy, it was compassion, but it wasn't comfortable, right? It was messy, it was gross, it was transformative in that way that transformation happens, but it wasn't comfortable. The plant gives him comfort. But then as soon as that happens, the, the very next day, sends a little worm, or that night, I guess, sends a little worm, kills the plant, brings the heat and the warm wind upon his head, and now he's suffering again. And he's crying out. He again asked that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And it's interesting that he asks for the plant, right? So he's being specific now. We know that the plant isn't the problem, right? The, the fact that the, that the plant was there and now is dead, that's not the real problem, right? But it was, it's that trigger. It's that trigger that sets Jonah off. And now the silent treatment is over. And he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <clears throat> and again, we have been here, haven't we? We are here. We are so often angry enough to die. We're angry with the way that things are going. I feel entitled to the way to feel like this. Look at what you've put me through. I'm suffering here when I follow you. Look at the suffering that has come along with my obedience. Jonah, I'm sure, is saying to himself, I'm a prophet. I am meant to be your voice. I acted in that way. I was your voice. But now you changed your mind. What does that do for my reputation as, as a prophet? But not only that, what does it say about the God that I'm pro- prophesying about? Right? If this God is unpredictable, how can I trust this God? So I think it's more than just a concern that Jonah has for his own reputation. It's his whole worldview that's being thrown into, um, in, in, into, into chaos here. Because again, Nineveh is not a part of Israel. This is compassion that God is showing so lavishly that it's tough to comprehend. How do we comprehend that? And I think Jonah is wrestling with that. So God responds and says, you pity the plant. You pity, uh, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being a night and perished in a night. And then he asked the question that finishes the chapter. And he says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This sense of pointing Jonah towards this plant that he's so upset about again that he says just kill me just look, look at I had a great thing going here with this plant in the shade and I was going to watch what happened to the city and now I can't even do that and God pointing towards him and says but remember the big picture remember look at what you're getting upset about this little plant that came up on one night and is gone the next <clears throat> If you feel pity for that plant, this thing that is um, temporary, the thing that you had no 
no, um, no effort in, no love for it because you haven't poured yourself into it. Imagine what I feel for the city down there because they're my people. They're not my covenant people, but they're the people who I love. They're the people who I've created. We hear in this question a longing that God has to be reconciled to his people. And at one point, it's easy to read this again from our standpoint today of, of saying, yeah, of course, that's what, I mean, of course, no, Jesus came to die for everyone. But remember how shocking this would be to an Israelite or to, to a nation of Israel that saw itself as special. That saw itself as the one in which God acted in and through. And now God is acting on behalf of the people who we call our enemy. That would be tough to wrestle with. And that's what we're being asked to, to, to dig into here in the text. Because that's how we, we still have that same sentiment within us. That same sense of, but what is God doing here? I thought I knew God. I thought I had it figured out. So this question is an invitation to search God's heart. It's the invitation that is open to us today. But this is not easy, right? And that is, for me, the important lesson for us this morning from Jonah. Let us not pretend that we are not exactly like Jonah throughout this whole story. Frantically running from God. Being exhausted and just giving up, being apathetic and going to sleep. Checking out. Finally resigning ourselves to die and being thrown over the side of the boat. Sinking that pressure of chaos and that inability to breathe. Being swallowed by a whale. And it's in that strange, uncomfortable place where we find our transformation. And then being vomited up onto the shore, still messy, still broken, but with a new, with a a freshness to us, a a salvation that's there. Um, But then, of course, as we go out into the world and try to witness to this God who has saved us, who has redeemed us, created us, it's still not going to work out the way that we think. See, Jonah had an image of himself. He had an image of God. He had an image of God's people that he wasn't willing to let go of in order for God to do what God was going to do. And we know that God in his actions cut across those sacred images that we hold of ourselves, of others, of our culture, of our church. For me... It's in Jonah's prayer um, in, in 2 verse 8 where he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This for me is where kind of the, the whole story revolves upon. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We have idols in our life. The whole, this whole text speaks of the danger of idolatry, the, the danger of those images that we have that distract us from and prevent us um, from embracing the ways and purposes of God. 
and the ways and purposes of God are that steadfast love. Experiencing that steadfast love. Acting out of that steadfast love. And yet in the midst of that, we cling to those things that prevent us from understanding and experiencing and witnessing to that steadfast love. Jonah was offended by the way that God treated him, by the way that God treated um, the, the, Nineveh, um, the, the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh. And there are times when we are offended by the way that God works. There's the ways in which we think he should have shown up and he didn't. There's places where we feel hurt, where we cry out, yes, I'm right to be angry. Let me tell you why. Remember that God isn't shaken by that either. Steadfast love remains there. Our ability to experience it, to connect with it, is are we able to let go of those things, those imaginings that we have that prevent us from connecting with God? And each of us has those and they look different for each of us. Different cultures, different um, ways of thinking, different ages. It means we have different different images that prevent us. Some of them are the same. The idea of success, I think, is, is one, one thing. What does success look like? Because it, in so many ways, the story of the Jonah is actually incredibly successful, isn't it? I mean, he came, he gave this incredible message of God, and the people repented. It's beautiful. But he wasn't happy with that. Because he couldn't understand that that could be success. He clung on to an image of what success looked like. And that was what he said happened on the ground of Nineveh overthrowing. And so what's the image of success that we have for us? What do we imagine that God is bringing us to that we cling to so tightly? that we don't actually allow God to take us and allow God to work in us the way that God wants to work in us. It's important for us in the way that we do our work. What's our image of success in the work that we do? What motivates us? It's not, these aren't easy questions to think about. It's so easy to have an image out there of success and I'm just trying to get the work and myself and others to look like that and to become completely exhausted, striving after that. How are we helping each other to learn how to wrestle with that? Because we haven't. We do. I haven't. How in the way that I relate to my friends, in the way that I, the actions, the things I buy, the movies I watch, all of that, how does it point towards the image of what God is doing and opening up myself to allow God to do what God is doing? I think worship is an important part of that, and we're talking about that a lot these days. It's great. Prayer is an important part Reading scripture is the important part. We're opening these things up. So it's exciting. It's great to be a part of a community that's taking this seriously. Let's end it there.
but in, I encourage you guys to take that question at the end of, of, of the book and ask yourselves, what is, the, what is the questioning of your life? Right? For Jonah, it was, shouldn't I have compassion on those people, given that they are my creation? For us, what's the question that, that God's asking us this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that, that we have your word. We thank you that we have scripture to, to call upon and to wrestle with. And, uh, and I pray, Lord, that this morning, that in, in some small way, that, we, um, that each of us is able to, to, to open our, our hearts and our minds to you, Lord, and that, that your words are the ones that will sink in and dwell among us, And I pray for all those words that are, that are above and beyond and distracting to those words, Lord, that we'll forget about those. And Lord, that your presence will dwell among us here this morning and dwell among each of us as we move out of here this morning and allow us to, to connect with you in new and fresh ways, to be open to you in new and fresh ways, to learn how to live this out together as the body of Christ to be your sons and daughters, to be transformed in your likeness, to witness to you. And I pray that you give us strength and courage as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. www.tenseadwork.org